So welcome to Hone In With Me, Saad Alam. Today is one of those days that you just never forget. It's the day that we launch our first episode of this podcast, and it is incredibly personal to me. Now, the reason why it's so personal is because I saw my father get type 2 diabetes, which is a horrible chronic condition around the age of 35. And for the next 35 years, I saw him fight that disease. And it isn't just type 2 diabetes. It becomes type 1 diabetes. It becomes kidney failure. It becomes stroke. It becomes watching the person that you love with all your heart lose their ability to live their life. And frankly, you shouldn't have to experience that. Your parents shouldn't have to experience that. And your kids should not have to experience that. And the reason being is it's all incredibly preventable. And so what we realize is that it is really hard to live life. And more importantly, it is really hard to implement new behaviors. And so what we wanted to do is make sure with the limited amount of brain power and willpower we all have, we give you the highest quality science-backed information so you can live longer and better. That being said, we are starting with a truly extraordinary guest, neurophysiologist and human performance coach, Luisa Nicola. Luisa is the director of Neuroathletics, a company that works with top performers to become the top 1% of their field by leveraging neuroscience. And many people don't know this because we are also announcing this today. Luisa is our first scientific advisor here at Hone. We think she is destined for absolutely great things. Her story is remarkable. Nine years ago, Luisa was on a path to representing Australia at the Olympics in the triathlon where she was struck by a car. To accelerate her recovery, she integrated brain training into a regimen. The integrated approach led her to the Auckland World Championship Series, where she clinched the 13th place in the triathlon. Luisa has since dedicated her life to assisting elite athletes and business leaders, helping them perform better, think faster, and achieve more results. In today's episode, we'll delve deep into brain health and how we can improve it as we age while avoiding neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. We'll also discuss simple ways to use your brain to boost athletic performance. Now, let's hone in. Welcome to Hone In with me, Saad Alam. This is a podcast that goes deep into topics that help you live longer and smarter. Each week, we'll deliver science-backed advice from the world's leading experts in nutrition, health, technology, fitness, relationships, and mindset. We cut through the BS to get you real answers and solutions. So let's hone in. We are with Luisa Nicola today, and I am incredibly excited to have you on. One, because it's been six months in the making, but two, you are an official advisor for Hone, and we couldn't be more excited to have you. I'm even more excited, but thank you for having me here. Listen, uh, we're neighbors. I feel like you should do this more often. Yeah. And so we're here, but here's the thing. I want you to tell people what you do. <laughs> It's a loaded question. Yeah, it's funny because I still have to explain this to my parents. Um, so I'm a neurophysiologist and we'll start with understanding what that is. So you've probably heard of a neurologist, yeah. somebody you'd go to um, if you've had, let's just say, a constant headache or you've got, you know, you're just not feeling right from the neck up. Okay, you go and see a neurologist. Maybe they say to you, listen, I suspect that maybe you have something on the lines of multiple sclerosis. Mm. 
So you'd go and see a neurophysiologist for something like that. So a neurophysiologist is certified to do many things such as a an EMG, which is an electromyography. That is something that where you, we go through and we put little needles inside you and test the muscle for instance, we test the nerve function. We may even test the spaces between the nerves, the neuromuscular junction, to see if you have any dysfunctions or deformities. Mm-hmm. We also do EEGs, which is my primary modality of usage. I do EEGs right now. And EEGs, an electroencephalography or an electroencephalogram. And the best way to describe this is, have you ever seen those caps that you put on your head and they've got all these leads coming out of it? I have. They're the things that are part of my nightmares. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've had a seizure, for Mm. example, you may go and see a neurophysiologist um, in a hospital and they'll scan your brain and they'll pick up on if you have epilepsy, for example, or dysfunctions in your brain. And basically what that's doing is it's assessing the functionality of the brain. So that's generally what I do and nerve conduction studies as well to test the nerve fibers and anything you know, I was primarily look primarily looking at when I was obviously practicing, I was primarily looking for early onset Alzheimer's disease. And I was scanning so many brains, scanning brain after brain after brain, and I had a thought. And I thought, if a brain scan can pick up on dysfunctions in brainwave patterns, or it can pick up on something not happening functionally correct in the brain why are we only looking at people who have symptoms for example why can't we look at just a perfectly healthy brain and when I told um when I told my attending he was like what are you talking about he's like just stick to your job so that's when I decided to venture out and start uh, my company, which is NeuroAthletics. And we generally literally just sit at the intersection of neurology and high performance. So what do you guys really do there, right? Are you putting these caps on people? So, okay, so it's a twofold. So we've we've got one aspect of what we have is a, a media wing, we call it, which is an education company. So we educate, we educate in various ways. I'm trying to democratize Uh, brain health education, because Mm. I truly believe that the brain is the greatest insurance policy that a human can have. And so we're out there trying to deliver the best insurance policy that ever existed. So we're trying to democratize that and trying to help people understand what the brain is. And we do that through our signature program. It's called the Neuroathletics Coaching Certificate. We've now certified over 400 US coaches per se. And I also do a lot on Instagram and social media and threads and Twitter. So I'm doing a lot of that public education. Then we also have a coaching side. So I currently work with 20 of the world's best athletes across three sports. And I'm doing everything from brain scans to blood labs. I'm doing DNA tests. I'm testing their VO2 max. I'm doing absolutely everything I can to understand who they are within and then make them perform better on the field. So I guess the first question that comes to mind is, I think about Wendy Rhodes from Billions, right? Yeah. Is it, is it crazy to say that you were almost a more informed version of Wendy Rhodes? It's funny because I actually go into um, hedge funds and I have three hedge funds um, that are currently with us. And my sole role at these hedge funds is to go in and 
give talks and keynotes and seminars to their major portfolio managers. Sometimes I'm in front of 50, sometimes I'm in front of 400. And a lot of the times when I walk in there, they say, hey, Wendy. Um, different type because Wendy was a psychiatrist, I believe. In, and psychologist, I think. Yes, yeah, psychologist, psychiatrist. And look, that does definitely serve a function, really understanding how to manage your emotions under pressure. We do talk about that, mm-hmm. uh, but we go even deeper. We do things that are more structurally uh, applicable. Let me think about myself. Let's say, right, I'm early 40s. I'm starting to slow down just a little bit, just like a lot of our, our, our patients. And I come into you and I basically say, hey, Louisa, fix me. What's yeah. the process you guys go through? First process is a decode phase. So within the first two months, that's when we're doing everything. So you'll go through and you'll see our exercise physiologist and he'll generally do muscle fiber tests. First of all, we want to assess how well your type one and type two muscle fibers are functioning. He'll figure out difference between type one and type two muscle fibers. So type two is the ones that are easily fatigable and the ones that are responsible for fast twitch. So you generally look at someone who is a sprinter. They'd have an abundance of uh, fast to fast type two muscle fibers. The The type one are the slow to fatigue. So they're the ones that are really responsible for long endurance events, the ones that I'm generally make, made up of, mm-hmm. okay? I'm more type type one rather than type two. But what we now know from the literature is in order to live a longer life, mm-hmm. okay? And this was done on centenarians. They go and they have a look at, you know, why do these guys live to 100, both in terms of health span and lifespan. So these guys are living to 100, but they're also living well. Well, it turns out that they've got more type 2 muscle fibers. Now, what happens is at the age of around 35, 40, these type 2 muscle fibers begin to atrophy. So we must be working on them. We must be training them vigorously and deliberately. I feel like I'm going to take us down a rabbit hole. I'm just going to do it. We can do it. Type two muscle fibers, yeah. right? More I have, better my health span is, theoretically longer I live. Correct. Can I one, increase the number of type two muscle fibers and or how do I just keep them? Yeah, well, you can. And so what happens is you think of, if I said to you, well, every single day in order to maintain the amount of type two muscle fibers that you have, you have to do things at a fast twitch. So for example, you could be doing plyometric jumps. Okay, well, plyometric workouts, so like box jumps. You really want to be able to, you know, see where you are. And that's one of our standard measurements, actually. It's a a box jump. We want to see how high, and we do a vertical jump test. Okay, so that's a real good marker of type 2 muscle fiber. So you want to do that, and then you want to be training according to that. So you Hmm. want to be training things like plyometrics. You want to be doing your box jumps. You want to be doing your your sprints. Maybe it doesn't matter if it's a 10-second sprint or a 20-second sprint. Okay. I feel good about this. Yeah. Okay. So if you're doing that, then that's good. I'm doing a ton of sprinting. That's actually the only way I realize I can keep weight off myself. Yeah. We do um, another test where we'll test the um, strength of your big toe. 
because we know that as we also get older. So we're, by the way, I just want everybody to know we're optimizing for many different areas. We have like a 35 year old athlete. That's like Louisa, I'm probably going to retire in the next two, three years. And I need to just be the best that I can. Mm. The way we treat him would be different from the way we treat our 55 year old portfolio manager who has, He's had, he's had three kids. He's got a wife. He's like, Louisa, I just want to just feel better. And I want to be able to feel this way at 90 and a hundred. So we, we do two, you know, we, we'd optimize differently, but we test the exact same. So we're doing a toe strength test. For example, we're figuring out their zone two lactate threshold. We're doing a VO2 max. How do you figure out zone two lactate threshold? Zone two is great. Okay. So first of all, there's two different ways that we're doing it. So we're doing a VO2 max test. You've probably heard of that. Yep. Have you ever done one? Yes. And what, I don't know what you got, but we've got like measurements of where we want. If you have a look at a general chart, it'll say you're poor, you're average, you're great, or you're an elite. We're trying to get all of our guys according to their age group in the elite bucket. Oh, wow. So yeah. I think, so I have to say this. I'm an athlete. I work really hard. I've got a very low lactate threshold. My VO2 max is actually, I think, in the great category. I don't think I'm in the elite category at all. Um, and I generally am poor with any kind of long-term endurance, but short-term bursts of energy, nail it all day long. Well, that's good because that's how you actually work on your VO2 max. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's that short bursts of energy, but not too short. So our standard measurement of, um, uh, our standard practice of actually improving your VO2 max is by 30 minutes a week of VO2 max efforts. And that generally consists of doing four minutes at like that 90% of maximum heart rate threshold. Four minutes straight? Four minutes, four minutes off. And we do four by four. So that ends up being 16 minutes. So you could do this twice a week. So if I wanted to say, let's say, right, that my workouts consist of me sprinting at 11 or 12 miles per hour on a treadmill. Four minutes of that would tear me Annihilate up. you, yeah. Oh my God. But you should work up to it. Okay. Okay, yeah. That's why we do four minutes. It's not because as soon as you start that treadmill, your maximum heart rate isn't there straight away. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it takes time for you to creep up there and it takes time for you once you're there to stay there. Is it better? So I'll tell you what I do, right? I go, I get on my treadmill, start at three miles an hour. Then I go to five. I do that for five minutes. Then I go to three miles per hour again for another minute. Then I go to six miles per hour, three miles per hour, seven miles per hour, three miles per hour, eight miles per hour, three miles per hour. And I kind of cap off at 11 and my sprints are about two minutes at 11. Would it be better for me to just jump on and go right into my 11 mile per hour sprints? After a sufficient and long warm up? Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm very, um, I come from an athletic background. As Mm -hmm. you know, I I was a triathlete and I was extremely vigilant with our training programs. Like I had a coach obviously um, who wrote everything, but there was none of this. Let's just see how we go. I was very walk into the gym, complete this, complete that. So that's how, that's the approach I take now. I don't just say, you know, that's okay. I really say today is your VO2 max day. Mm -hmm. You're going to do a 30 minute warm up. I do a very long warm up. Thirty minutes. Well, the fitter you are, the longer the warm up has to be. Oh, t- wait! Explain that to me. That's yeah. really interesting. The fitter that you get, you're. I mean, that's just pretty much just the 
the basis of it. So uh, for you, I mean, I don't know, you're, you're spitting out these numbers to me, but I don't know anything about your fitness level. That's a great question. And I'm yeah. not sure how I would describe it in comparison to other people. And it's nothing, and here's the thing, that it's nothing that you can describe. I don't take anything. You know, people say to me, oh, Louise, I'm taking vitamin D supplements. Are they good? I say, show me your blood work. Mm-hmm. I don't, we measure and optimize everything. everything because nothing I say is of my opinion. If I tell you to take, third, you know, if I tell you to take three or four grams of EPA, DHA, that's because we've done an omega-3 index test with you. So let's go back because you asked me yep. zone two. So we can do this through a blood lactate meter, which we do. Um, and we can, we can pick it up from there, but we can also do it from your VO2 max. So our VO2 max test is pretty special. We get a report that gives us, obviously your VO2, it gives us your, it gives us all of your zones. So it says, this is your exact zone two training metric. So you'll know what it is. It will give us a metabolic efficiency. Mm -hmm. It'll give us a cognitive efficiency, meaning how well are you able to breathe and think whilst in that 70 or 80% maximum heart rate. Oh, wait, how do you do that? That's yeah. really interesting. Well, that's part of the, the VO2 max. So basically basically just saying like when you get to this stage, your brain begins to just go all over the shop, which okay. is normal, right? So we try and optimize for that. So there's about 10 different metrics we get from the one test. So you're not asking me a series of questions to see how well my brain, this is quite literally like physiological. Physiology one. Yeah. We we have to do it on you. Okay. So that's that metric. That's part of the exercise protocol. Um, Along with all of the other tests, the standing box jump. We've got many other tests. We also do neuroathletics. I know that's my company, but it's also part of our cognitive brain training assessments and within that sits around 25 different assessments from assessing assessing different lobes of the brain and then we do a full visual acuity test how do you assess lobes of the brain so let's do a brief uh, neuroanatomy course if you will um, it's funny because our NAC program the neuroathletics coaching certificate i pretty much teach um Neurology 101, or I would say when you do meds, when you go through med school and it's like year two, you go into neuroanatomy. And so I teach this. So this is great. So if you're sitting at home, you can do this little exercise with us. You get your right hand and you put it up against your forehead. And so right there sits your frontal lobe. And the reason I get you to do that is because if you have a look at your palm, it is about the size of your palm, your Mm -hmm. frontal lobe, and it sits right there behind your forehead. And that is A, the most primitive part of the brain and B, the largest part of the brain. Hmm. Largest in terms of not just structurally, in terms of it houses the most amount of neurons. So it's the busiest. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, this is the, the part of the brain that houses the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is like the CEO of the brain. It's the one directing everything. It houses all of our cognitive functions. You've got thinking, reaction time, processing speed, uh, focus, attention. So all of these things live within the frontal lobe. So we can test this. How can we test it? Well, we can do basic reaction training tests, which we do. We set up reaction lights and we have a 
uh, we have an iPad which really detects, okay, if we get you to stand a meter away from the light, how long does it take you to deactivate the light? We do this with a lot of our ball players. Mm -hmm. Our EEG also tests this, by the way. We'll get into the EEG scan in a second. Then you've got the occipital lobe. Okay, so you've got four lobes of the brain. You've got the frontal lobe. We're moving all the way back now to the occipital lobe. And the occipital lobe is where our visual processing happens. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine right now we've, we've got two eyeballs and these eyeballs are connected to the brain via a nerve. It's called the optic nerve. The optic nerve connects the eye, goes into the brain, but you don't process information with your eyes. Your eyes are just lenses. Okay. So it sees an object, kind of spins it around, kinds of does this. It comes in, we've got this thing called the optic nerves come in into something called the optic chiasm where they split. And then these, these pathways end up going back into the occipital cortex. The occipital cortex says, oh, it's a ball. It's a plane. It is whatever it is. So we've processed that that's what it is. From there, it then sends a message up to your frontal cortex. The frontal cortex is like, all right, it's a ball. Yep. Do we want to catch the ball? Do we want to move out of the ball? Do we want to, yep. what do we want to do? Then from the frontal lobe, because that's the CEO of the brain, it then directs, it then says, hey, motor cortex, I need you to lift your arm or I need you to move out of the way. So that, that loop that I just took you through, I assess that. And if that loop takes you 0.3 seconds, I want it to take you 0.1 second. Hmm. Yeah. And that there is the difference between LeBron and number 400 in the NBA. 100%. 100%. Reaction timing. How yeah. fast can you process information? And you may ask, well, why isn't every coach working on reaction time? Well, that's what I'm trying to get them to do. But it takes someone who's extremely knowledgeable of the brain to really understand how to do that. So that's frontal lobe and occipital okay. lobe. I got a quick question. Yeah. You're assessing reaction time as it relates to something happening within your visual field, right? What if I'm in a meeting, right? Mm -hmm. I'm on a Zoom call. I got seven people. I got to look like I'm smart. Can I improve my reaction timing in a situation like that? Of course you can. But reaction time doesn't mean your brain doesn't think, oh, reaction time just because it's a ball. Reaction mm -hmm. time is anything. Then think the second biggest cause of roadside accidents or road accidents um, are because reaction time. That makes sense. Yeah. You just got to move a little bit faster. hundred percent. Yeah. Now. Okay. I completely took you off your, off your train of thought. So after you look at and assess the loop, the reaction timing loop, then what? Yeah. And by the way, that's just one of like 45 things that we're testing. Yeah. Hold on. Did you also come up with this protocol yourself? I did. How did you know to create this protocol? Because I got a call from, and this was in 2017 from um, an NBA player, by the way. Um, you can't tell I did, us who it is. I, well, I was going to say, I did 10 years of training um, academically and I didn't really know anything in sports other than my own sports. So I didn't know who people were. Mm -hmm. And if you put me in front of an actor today, which I was, it's a funny story, which we'll, we'll go into that. Like Rob Lowe, I didn't know who he was. Mm -hmm. And it was a fun experience. So I didn't know who many people were. So I did get a call from this very famous NBA player in 2017. 
And we just got to talking for like six hours. I had no idea who he was. I didn't know too much about the NBA. I just thought he played basketball. Um, and he, from working with him, all he said to me was, I just feel like I want to be sharper. I really deconstructed that. I said, let me do, he was my very first brain scan. I said, let me do a scan on you. And from the scan, the scan gives you event-related potentials, meaning that when we scan your brain, yes, we're scanning the functionality of your brain, but it gives you time-locked information, meaning that it tells me at particular times when the when your eye sees a stimulus and how it reacts to it. So from that, I started to build out my programming because it was all just based on what this guy wanted. And this was in 2017. I've worked 365 days a year since then. So to really develop this program. So 45 tests, you kind of assess someone's brain function, then what? And then from there, once we get all of the results and all of the data, we then put them on our training program. And that could include, like, for example, we could look at your blood test and we could look at your um, at your DNA test, for example, could come back and say, hey, listen, you've, you're predisposed to Alzheimer's disease, so we'd have to take a protocol in that direction. So we work in three categories, exercise. So we have a, an exercise program or, you know, three buckets of exercise that we work with. Then we've got sleep. Okay. So we assess sleep. Then we've got nutrients. I don't say nutrition because I'm not a nutrition nutritionist. They have their own nutritionists. I just optimize for supplementation and blood work. Okay. So basically I come in, mm-hmm. you make me do all of these tests. Mm-hmm. You assess my cognitive function, you, which includes my reaction timing. You then take a look at my processing speed as well. Processing yeah. speed. You then basically create a whole picture of who I am as an individual. I Yeah. What are, so let's say you did this with me, right? And by the way, I'm completely tempted to go through this process. What are the kind of like three to five things you tell people to do in order to start improving these? Very first thing is we will get you to do five minutes a day of neuroathletics training, which could be anything like we have, uh, we give you two balls. We call them neuro balls, but anyone can do this at home with a tennis ball. Just start throwing the ball to the wall. Okay. Oh, and this is going to get me kicked out of my apartment. I yeah, do this. you I will. Do this. It's, it's I do this so fun. And you know, people think it's that easy. Well, I, I, I came to you and I just, just try it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because this is like level one. If you think of a pyramid, we're starting you at the base level. Base level is, I just want you to throw the ball to the wall with your right hand for one minute, overhand grip for one minute. Then you're going to change and you're going to do the left hand. Okay. What is this taking into account? You think it's a, I'm just throwing the ball to the wall. No, it takes accuracy, speed, hand-eye coordination, reaction time, visual processing, visual acuity. It takes so many things into place. And you're building out the base of where we're going to work with you. And I guess it makes sense because so many of us lead these incredibly sedentary lives and we're sitting around on our computers or not getting out and actually playing something anymore. That part of our brain is definitely atrophying. Yeah. And one thing I want everyone to know is that think of your brain because everyone knows muscles. We know that if we don't train the biceps, it's going to atrophy. What is the definition of atrophy? It is decrease in muscle cell size. It's the opposite of hypertrophy. Exact same thing happens to your brain. Use it or lose it Mm -hmm. pretty much. So we are born and we start to develop our brain. What do we do when we're kids? Now, 
if you, if you, I want everyone to go and have a look on, on Google, you'll see, you type into Google homunculus, you'll see this little guy pop up, right? He's got a big face, huge hands and huge feet. And basically you'll see a, a, a coronal part of the brain just doing this. Basically that is a representation of where, what, what is, like what your brain is responsible for. Every part of your brain is accounted for. Mm-hmm. And when we're little, we're doing things, we're out on the grass, we're climbing trees, we're throwing balls, we're talking to people, we're experiencing new things. So every part of the brain is active. What happens when we get older? It's not novel anymore. Yeah, like I've never, I haven't been outside without shoes on in, you know, many years. I do live in New York City, so that would be dangerous. <laughs> I haven't climbed a tree. Okay. I haven't climbed anything. I don't grip things, you know, like, you know, so I'm missing and my brain is not getting that. So we, it, it tends to atrophy, those little parts of the brain that wants you to grip something and climb something is starting to atrophy. So we, we take into account all of that. It's so interesting, right? Because people basically say that what you realize as you get older, that time actually begins to speed up because as a relative part of your life, it's actually a smaller percentage. And that a way to actually make time feel like you're stretching it is to go consistently get novel experiences. And what you hear is that people that are traveling more consistently and seeing new things, they feel like their lives are so much richer. Yeah. Is there any, and this is probably something even beyond your purview, is there any evidence or research that shows the more you go get these novel experiences or you activate different parts of your brain, you actually tend to live a little bit longer? I don't know in terms of tend to live a bit longer, but what you do is you build cognitive reserve hmm. and that cognitive reserve is needed as you live longer to starve off neurodegenerative diseases. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So not your brain, your brain's fine. You know, it, it's so dumb and plastic, uh, but- it is the federal government of your entire body. That's why it's the most important. I say dumb and plastic because neuroplasticity is what governs us as human beings and you can manipulate your brain to be whatever you want through deliberate action. Um, but it loves novelty, okay? It loves it. That's how it grows. Was it do- so I should reframe that. It doesn't love novelty. It needs novelty. It needs new things, but it loves to be secure, and it loves consistency, and it loves protection. Hmm. Your brain is only here for is only here for two reasons: reproduction and survivability. You are not born to live to a hundred. Your brain, really, when we look evolutionarily, we were meant to. Your brain was li- literally meant to die off after reproduction. So around thirty five, forty, it says, "Hey, I've had my kids." Uh, there's no longer a, a use for me. Now with the uh, introduction of pharmaceuticals and, you know, we're now living longer. Mm-hmm. So the brain's like, Jesus, I'm now living to 50, okay, because I've had my penicillin shot. We're now living to 50. I've had my antibiotics. Oh, now I'm living to 60. What? Mm-hmm. Now we're in 2023 and David Sinclair's promising uh, life until, what, 150. So the brain isn't here to keep you happy so it's not here to go out and experience knowledge it's it's here to protect you keep you alive keep you alive yeah so the first thing that comes to my mind right so my my father passed away unfortunately about a year ago almost to the day and my mother uh is in her 60s although we tell her she's in her 20s to this day 
Um, and I constantly am thinking about how do I keep her alive as long as possible? And we're incredibly close. I see her all the time. Is it crazy to say that if I constantly make sure my mom is having these new experiences, not only will she have a longer health span, maybe not a longer lifespan necessarily, but that it is highly probable that I'll keep her, I would say, fis- mental facilities intact longer? Oh, absolutely. And um, an interesting study that I've been talking about for the last three weeks is this Harvard study that they tracked these individuals over an 80-year period. And so it was just published around three, four months ago. And what they found was that the secret to long-lasting brain health was in fact, do you know what it was? Social connections. Yeah, social connections. So as long as, you know, I always say, and I tell my mom, I'm like, go and hang out with your friends. Get away from my dad for a bit, you know, Mm -hmm. go and hang out with your friends. Go, she she loves to paint. Go and paint, do this, do that. So I think that there is definitely something to to be said about that. Okay. what? So the only other things too you talk about, and it seems like it's a real passion of yours, is understanding how to stave off Alzheimer's. Yeah. What are the key things I should be doing in order for myself and as well as someone like my mother? And by the way, right, I'm in my early 40s. She's in her 60s, although we tell her she's 25. Yeah. Okay, let's let, let's also start by understanding and defining some terms here. So yeah. dementia mm-hmm. is the umbrella term that is used for many different forms of dementia. We've got frontotemporal dementia, we've got Alzheimer's disease, we've got vascular dementia. The reason why we hear Alzheimer's disease is because it's the most prevalent. 50 million people worldwide currently have Alzheimer's disease and that number is said to triple by the year 2050. When you have a look at what Alzheimer's disease is, it's a neurodegenerative disease. So it means that you degenerate over time. It takes a long time for it to actually come into fruition, Mm -hmm. which is scary. Um, On that, in terms of neurophysiologists, when you asked me earlier, we tend to focus on demyelinating diseases. And I guess if we were, you know, we should have gone through the anatomy of a brain a bit further, but we'll skip past that. But let's just stay on this Alzheimer's disease. Uh, Hold on real quickly. Demyelating. Yeah. Can you describe what that is to people? So the brain is around three pounds. Okay. And you can think of the consistency as hard jello. You can mm-hmm. put your fingers in it. That's what it feels like. You can't put your fingers in it. But if you put, if you did put your fingers in your brain, it would feel like hard jello. It consists of around 87 billion neurons. Now, these neurons are, they are brain cells and they are like the cells in your body. We have trillions of cells in our body. If you go back to year nine biology, you remember that the cell has a cell body. It has a nucleus, ribosomes, as mitochondria, has many different things within the cell. Your neuron is the exact same, but the neuron's different in the fact that it has a leg coming off it. That leg is called an axon. Mm-hmm. And that axon is covered in myelin. It's a fatty substance. And that myelin is responsible for conduction speed. So thoughts, you know, cross through that myelin. And when it crosses down, it then connects to another neuron and it synapses. Okay. And that's how we communicate. That's how our brain cells communicate. We actually have around 30,000 connections per brain cell. 
which is scary. Hold on. So there's yeah. 87 billion neurons. Mm-hmm. With around 30,000 connections per neuron. And I was a math major. Um, I did my master's in pure mathematics before I moved into medicine. So if we were to do the math on that, you'd multiply 30,000 by 87 billion. So it end up being 2.1 quadrillion, which if then you do the math on that, which is, what is it? Four times as many cells in the body. Just in your three-pound brain. your three-pound brain. So it's like this bustling city. It's like New York City mm-hmm. with all the cars being your brain cells and all the highways being the mile, being the axon, right? So the more times I travel down one, that, that myelin gets thicker because it remembers. And if we remember back to when I said I do nerve conduction studies to pick up on multiple sclerosis, mm-hmm. there is something or a phenomenon if we were to – do an NCS, we'd see something called a conduction block, meaning that, oh, this nerve, there is a, there's a block. So that means that I have to assess this more. Maybe it's multiple sclerosis because I'm seeing a demyelinating mm-hmm. effect, meaning that your myelin sheath, there is something wrong there. It's either too thin because the conduction is slow. We've got, you know, decreased conduction happening, which it's slower than the average, which could be, you know, we have to think is that, you know, what could that be? It could be myasthenia gravis. It could be another demyelinating disorder. If it's complete conduction block, then that's pretty scary, right? You know, one of the most terrifying demyelinating disorders is ALS. Mm -hmm. And that is, it it is horrific. Okay. Um, We call it motor neurons disease in Australia same thing um and yeah it is you know myasthenia gravis it's also that all of these demyelinating disorders are however i will say that ms is not a death sentence and there's um you know people with ms go on to live very long and and prosperous lives because of medication and pharmaceuticals um but we got too far into this i think we were discussing alzheimer's disease yep so i hope everyone's still with us but 50 million people worldwide, number is set to triple by the year 2050. Now, there's around 30 genes involved in Alzheimer's disease, three of which are pretty much, we call it 100% penetrant genes, meaning that, so for example, Huntington's disease, if you have, um, you know, mutation on chromosome four, you will get, like, there is nothing, we can't do anything about it. Alzheimer's disease says, around 30 genes, but only three of them really determine that, yes, you will get Alzheimer's. The rest of them are just risk genes. Mm -hmm. So out of these 50 million people worldwide, we could say that 97% of them are driven by lifestyle factors. And the 3%, they were genetically going to get some form of dementia. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we hear about this apolipoprotein, ApoE, ApoE4, people get scared of it. And yes, if you have one copy, it does increase your risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. If you have two copies, it further increases your risk for getting Alzheimer's disease. Just the same as if there is wet floor and if I go running, you increase your risk of breaking your leg if you run across that. Doesn't mean it's going to happen. Doesn't mean it's going to happen. But for somebody like me, if I was to run on that, then yes, it would happen. So you've got risk genes. 
Now, a risk gene means if we switch it on like a light switch, it means you've turned it on and you're going to increase your risk. But if you turn it off, you decrease your risk. It's baffling to me. So there was a study done on um, in Nigeria. Many people there have two copies of ApoE4, but they never get Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. Why is that? They're active? Because their lifestyle is so much better. Okay, so Alzheimer's disease, we're going to stay on that. We know the prevalence now. We know that they're just risk factors. So, okay, Louisa, why are so many, why do 50 million people worldwide have it? Hold on, or 150 around the corner. 150 around the corner, yeah. And it's going to be a fast, and they say by 2050, uh, I'm pretty sure it's going to be 2040. Not just that. If you have a look at how much the US is spending, it's spending way more, I believe, actually, maybe just in line with the amount that we spend um, on cancer. It's the exact same with Alzheimer's disease. It's going to be the collapse of the uh, of the global system. economy. Yeah. So it's scary. And so what are we doing? We could, you know, right now uh, we could talk about 15 modifiable risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to tell you the ones that are really going to move the needle and why. And they are exercise, sleep, and nutrition interventions. Just accounting for nutritional interventions alone can decrease your risk of Alzheimer's disease by 60%. So you're saying I could have two APOE4 genes that have been activated, that have increased my risk factor. But if I'm just eating right, that's it. Well, following a specific diet, they did this with the MIND diet. Okay. Tell me about this diet. Pretty much a Mediterranean diet, which consists mainly of around 70% fruits, vegetables, a little bit of grains, red meat, olive oil, and fish. Okay. So they didn't take out red meat. I know there's a lot of prominent figures in Alzheimer's disease Actually, not very many, but just that there are some people who believe that having a plant-based diet is much better for a healthy brain. Um, I consume meat and I don't tell anyone to go on the vegan diet or the plant-based diet. So just accounting for that alone can dramatically, you know, decrease your odds of getting Alzheimer's disease. But then we've got exercise. Now, currently right now, uh, alongside Dr. Tommy Wood, who is a phenomenal physician and um, scientist. We're publishing a lot. That's what takes up a lot of my time. But I have a deep passion for it. So um, uh, we're, we're publishing a systematic review, which will come out very soon. Uh, but it's all based on what are the effects of resistance training on mild cognitive impairment patients. Hmm. So it turns out that exercise is profoundly important for the brain, but also for starving off neurodegenerative diseases. So back in the 1990s, late 1990s, when scientists first sought out to think about, you know, what is what is exercise doing for the brain? They did this and they started on rodent models and they got them to, obviously, we always start out on, on rats and mice, got them to run on a treadmill, but also got them in the water to tread water, okay, mm-hmm. as if, and, and mice don't like water, as if they're going to die. So they had to tread water to try and stay alive. When they took out a piece of their brain, they realized that these mice have an increase in BDNF. So what they found 
was that when these mice were doing aerobic physical activity, 20 minutes a day, these mice produced an abundance of a growth factor, which is brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF. Imagine BDNF as a fertilizer for your brain. It is so powerful. Pharmaceutical companies are actually spending billions, billions to try and replicate this, but they can't because they know that if they can inject it, what you do, literally, you can see it happening. You inject BDNF on a brain cell, it grows. And that's what it did for these mice. So BDNF was growing the brain and they're like, Jesus Christ, could we replicate this in a human? You can replicate it in a human, but you can't grow new brain cells in the human. What you can do is you can grow new brain cells in the hippocampus of the brain. Coincidentally, the hippocampus, which is deep within the temporal lobes, we didn't get there in our neuroanatomy, but behind your ears, you've got two, obviously, temporal lobes. I say think of temper. That's where it lives, just behind the ears. And deep within there is this seahorse-shaped structure. Within this structure, it houses our memories and how we learn. It all it all lives in there, our memory formation, consolidation. And we have these little neurons that sit in there and they can grow. We can grow new neurons in the hippocampus of the brain through aerobic physical activity. So we now know that for humans. Okay. So that's the first thing that it does. Hold on. So it's the way you're almost describing it is when you work out, when you do aerobic training, let's be really specific. When you do aerobic training, I'm actually not growing my brain necessarily, but am I increasing the number of connections it has? Am I increasing the size of the neurons? What's, what's the BDNF doing? The BDNF is a growth factor. It's a messenger molecule and it goes in to the hippocampus and it helps with the proliferation. So it grows new neurons. Oh, it does grow new neurons. Only within the hippocampus. Okay. Now, when it does that, it also grows the volume of the hippocampus. So if you've got more volume, okay, inside this little library, what's that going to do? It's going to make you smarter. Well, it's it's going to help you remember and not forget people's names, which is the first thing to go with Alzheimer's disease. You start forgetting your keys, forgetting people's names. Oh, interesting. So yeah. short-term you, memory goes first. Are you almost saying that aerobic exercise is something that decreases your probability of getting Alzheimer's as you age? Correct. How much? Can I do tw- 10 minutes downstairs? 20 minutes a day. 20 minutes a day in what heart zone? Well, look, actually, I posted something on Instagram, and it's funny – it's very hard to get an RCT, a randomized control trial, and be able to just put it in one distinct reel. But I did this, caused a lot of havoc for me. So you can increase your um, BDNF by doing like, you know, five minutes of a hard out effort, okay? But you don't need to do that. You can have BDNF circulating in your bloodstream, going up to your brain and having an effect on your brain with literally 20 minutes of 65 to 70% of maximum heart rate, which is not hard. No, it's so no. easy, actually. Like the, so, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of jogging at a pace and or even fast walking where yeah. you can have a conversation with someone else. Mm. The way I describe it, because, um, by the way, I think everyone should be training with a heart rate monitor. We gift those to all of our um, 
all of our athletes. When I say athlete, anyone who comes on board at Neuroathletics. Um, but if you can't and you're like, well, Louisa, how do I know if I'm in zone two? Basically, if you're on a treadmill, it needs to be hard enough that you're working up a sweat, but easy enough that you can have a conversation. Mm -hmm. So that's how you would measure it. So for me, I kind of think about it like I'm a six mile per hour jog pretty consistently for Correct. 20 minutes, which is like a real fast, brisk Beautiful. kind of walk. Yeah. Okay. Remember, your 65% depends on how fit you are. 100%. And we don't know that until you come and do your VO2 max test. You know, and we will do that. It's so interesting. My father was a particle physicist. He discovered 14 particles, one of the smartest men I've ever met, and really kind of like indexed on using his intellectual muscle to push forward in life. And I used to love working out as an athlete. And he'd always say to me, Saad, show me one study that says if I work out, I'm going to be healthier. And I was like, dad, this is just completely intuitive. Just go do a single search. And I feel like this piece of information, because I can remember when it was, and I started to see his dementia kicking in, right? And it was like, oh, dad, we just had this conversation. We were just in that room. And to hear that 20 minutes a day is what would have actually improved that. God, I just wish I had that piece of information. Now, what if I do 40 minutes a day? Yeah, the more, pretty much it is the more, the better. The more, the better? Yeah, but... We're going to touch on under exercise sits three branches. Okay. So we've just talked about aerobic. Okay. Now we're going to talk about resistance training, which is mm -hmm. my area of research. What does resistance training do for the brain? And we didn't really discover this. You know, the 2000s, when we first figured this out, the 2000s were all about BDNF, BDNF. They were in every magazine article because I don't think um, Instagram existed back then. But early <laughs> 2000s, it's like, you know, Cosmopolitan Magazine. BDNF, uh, all of the magazines were all about BDNF. Then fast forward to around 2019, 20 years after, it's, you know, there was a systematic review that was done that really put resistance training on the forefront and had the spotlight attention because what these researchers found was that resistance training produced a whole other cascade of benefits. Mm -hmm. So, we'll go back to bicep curl analogy. So when we are bicep curling, we are getting a contracted, which is a shortening of your bicep muscles, okay? Now what happens is when they contract, they produce these within the cells of the actual, of the actual muscles, they produce these little myokines, okay? A myokine is a muscle-based protein. And when we produce these, they get released, obviously. So they shoot out from the muscle, they go into the bloodstream. When they go into the bloodstream, they go through and they connect to different organs. They connect to the prostate, to the liver, to the heart, because every organ has receptors, okay? These little receptors that sit there and they're just waiting for something to come through. So these little myokines go in and they sit and they lodge right there and they do amazing things. One of them is called irisin. Um, irisin is the myokine or messenger molecule. It was named after the Greek god of Iris. He was a messenger to the gods, and that's what irisin does. It is a messenger to the gods. Basically, it goes in, and oh, my God, it does amazing things when it goes into the brain. You know what it does? It goes in and says to BDNF, hey, I'm here. So it basically pushes BDNF to go through and be more further expressed. So then it enhances 
the expression of BDNF. Um, we've got cathepsin B. We've got lactate. We have um, we have interleukin six. IL six is this bipolar molecule. I say, should stop saying that, but it's very when it's released. Depending on where it's released, it can be pro-inflammatory. We know it as being pro-inflammatory in terms of immunity, but if you release IL six from the cell body of a muscle, it is anti-inflammatory so it can downregulate cytokines so it's an anti-inflammatory effect so these myokines are the building blocks of a of the brain and in fact i know this now because this has been proven 80 percent of brain gray matter is modifiable by exercise 80 percent and gray (laughs) matter of the brain is the cell bodies okay white matter is the myelin okay so it's the deep it's the myelinated part of the of this of the neuron so you can go through and you can change your brain structurally through resistance training but here's the caveat these my by the way there's around a thousand myokines i i hope to discover one and call it louisa so you can go through and get a hit of louisa at the gym but the Wouldn't whole concept cool? is like beautiful though, right? Like you're telling me when you're- I go to the gym in the morning, right? And I literally did this this morning and I take a weight and I do a rep. I have these cytokines. There are a thousand of them. No, not cytokines. No, myokines. Myokines. Thank you. I have these myokines that rush through my body. And then when I run afterwards, I'm producing BDNF that's sitting around in my brain they actually tell my BDNF to say, hey, move a little bit faster. Mm-hmm. And on top of it too, they're having potentially anti-inflammatory effects anti- on the rest of my body. Yeah. Not just that, they're also they're in this wonderful uh, review, the systematic review, um, Harold et al. is the authors and it was really beautiful. They've got a diagram there that shows this schematic view of what this happens. So it's like first thing that happens is you go through um, – and you get these cellular effects. This is in terms of resistance training, the cellular effects, which is the myokine release. What then happens is this goes through and structurally changes the gray matter volume and white matter volume, okay, through the effects that I just said. What does that then do? It goes through and it then increases mood, it increases um, your resiliency to stress, it improves sleep, and it improves executive functions. Then it goes into a socioeconomic perspective. And then it says, what does that do? Well, it can then increase survivability. It can increase um, your chances of being happy. It can increase revenue in a business or increase your personal net worth. And then it has this bidirectional arrow, which then comes back to if you've got a higher net worth and you're happier and you've got a higher libido, that's then going to improve mood and sleep. And that's going to increase your chances of going back to the gym. So it's like, cool, 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 cool. It's just unbelievable. So when you said this is beautiful, it really is. It is a, there is no reason why anybody, I don't care if you are 25 or if you are 105, you should be lifting weights. Caveat, because you said something, if I go and do one bicep curl, doesn't happen like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nature is not that nice. You have to be lifting heavy. So to induce this effect, you 
do have to lift heavy and you have to lift at around 80% of your one repetition max. So decode phase, we also do um, one rep max for bench, squat, deadlift. Okay. I remember, right, when I first started fasting, it's one of the most miserable things in the world, right? Like Like a a 24-hour fast? Like a 24-hour fast, right around 12 hours, right? Your stomach starts growling and you kind of get a little bit lightheaded. And I remember I was speaking to one of our uh, chief medical officers, Dr. Giovanni Campanile, who's a Harvard-trained cardiologist, and he said, Saad, listen, if you just think about that feeling and remember that if you get to the other side of it, there are a bunch of beautiful things that happen. Your body starts releasing ketones, your ketones start fueling your brain, you start removing a lot of the dead cell debris from the rest of your body, and the senescent cells are actually being put to sleep and you're actually increasing your longevity. And I kept on remember, like thinking about that unlock as I had that hunger. And I was like, listen, if I just get through this, I'm literally going to be in the most magical place. And I remember it was quite literally the thing that gave me this hope. And once I learned how to manifest and I harness that, all of a sudden I could fast time whenever I wanted to over yeah. and over and over. And so the way that you're describing exercising and aerobic activity, I think the people that are struggling with it to get off the couch and to do something, they should quite literally say to themselves, do I want a better life? Not only do I want to live longer, but do I want a better life right now? Because you talked about this constant pinging back back and forth effect. That's all you have to do yeah. is quite literally get up, start moving and lift heavy weights. How often are you lifting heavy weights? Four times a week. Four times a week for how long? Well, look, that depends. But uh, instead of saying how long, it's just how long will it take you to get through the necessary reps and sets? So I generally say lifting four sets, doing four sets of six reps. Okay, four sets, six reps, four exercises. You're talking about 30 minutes of working out. And I'm saying that on that sixth rep, it's like, uh, so yesterday... I completely stuffed myself up because today I had scheduled a run, but yesterday I did legs and those walking lunges. Yeah. With 20 pounds in each hand, it's just, it's really difficult. But on that sixth one, it's like, can I lift myself back up? That's what I'm talking about. So you're pushing yourself. You've got to push yourself. Yeah. And the ladies listening, I'm speaking to the ladies here because we get scared. Some of us. Some ladies are scared to lift heavy weights in fear that they're going to be big. It is just physiologically impossible to be. It has. It takes a lot of volume and a lot of like deliberate action to get that big. So women are afraid to lift weights. They're scared. So we need to change the language around that. I feel like what people in general don't understand is when you lift heavy weights, you don't blow up into a bodybuilder overnight. No. That takes so it's much time and effort. So much. And so if you start lifting heavy weights moderately, four times a week for half an hour, plus you have 20 minutes of aerobic activity with it, you're just gonna be healthier, mm. period. And then you're gonna find out you wanna eat healthier, and you're gonna start eating healthier, and then you're gonna change your habits. And it sounds like from everything you're saying, if I do all these things, I'm actually making sure that I exercise my brain as a muscle to a certain extent, and I'm holding off Alzheimer's. Not just that, you're doing, uh, you're also holding off, uh, you, you're, decreasing your rate at getting let's let's talk about a stroke my father in in 2019 had a right parietal lobe infarct um and you know that's a that's also scary something that we back onto the women a third of the alzheimer's disease patients are women more women than men 
get these neurodegenerative diseases, which is scary. Hold on, a third more are women than No, a third of the total population of Alzheimer's disease patients are women. Okay, so a third. So why are two thirds, and I, I'm going to bring it back. Sorry, to- two thirds. Okay, two thirds. Yes, all right, more. That, that, that makes yes. sense to me. So is it because women aren't taking care of themselves as much as men? Many theories. One is increased lifespan. Mm-hmm. Women tend to live longer, therefore it increases the prevalency. Which makes sense. Makes sense, right? yes. But then there's this other side, which poses that women are the caretakers. When you, in, in a heterosexual relationship, mm-hmm. in a heterosexual marriage, what tends to happen is women become the caretaker of not just children, but the man. And they are looking after the man more so than themselves, increasing their rate of sleep deprivation and mm. stress mm-hmm. and keeping the man healthy. And I'm, I got to tell you, I see a real life situation happening with my parents. My mom is responsible 100% for my father in every, like it is just because from his stroke, we've seen a decline in his cognitive abilities, but it's just now my dad is 72. My mom is, you know, mid to late sixties. And she just, I see what she, like, she's, she, we can't even like it. I took her out for coffee when I was in Australia. I'm like, let's go for coffee. She's sitting there doing this. I said, what's, what's on your mind? What are you stressing about? Stressing about my dad being at home by himself. I said, he's fine. He's not, my dad is fine, but she just doesn't want him to be alone. And but my dad, I could take him out, and he couldn't. He's just he's just a completely different place. Completely different place. He's like, where are we going? We don't have to go home yet. So, and that is that's just what is um, being talked about right now. I'm not I'm not being a feminist here. That's just um, maybe one of the reasonings behind it. But there's obviously as well we have to talk about there are hormonal factors involved uh, postmenopausal women with the loss of estrogen. And you know, the other thing you mentioned too is, right, let's quickly talk about this whole menopause thing, right? Because mm. we're going through kind of, it's having its moment where it is being redefined in society right now. And there was a bunch of really, I'll call it early data that came out of the NIH two decades ago, which basically said hormone treatment for women is bad. And they've now recently walked that back and they've said, hey, estrogen's not bad. It's just bad when you start taking estrogen. There or is that window, yeah. And so- the very simple fact that you said, hey, when women go through menopause, they have less estrogen in their body because their ovaries are not producing as much. Maybe their adrenaline glands are producing a little bit. But if you're not supplementing that, all of a sudden, right, your in your rate of Alzheimer's is increasing. Is that a true statement? Yes. And also, no, it depends on obviously if you get on hormone treatments. But look, that's not my it's not my area. Um but there is definitely that is part of the reason why maybe two thirds of this population it's is a big number. Yeah, it's, it's a big huge. number. It's a huge um, the, the other profound reason why we all should be exercising for brain health and for uh, preventing cognitive decline is you've got your heart, right? I always say what's good for the heart is good for the brain. You've got your heart. There's this big, big artery. Okay, it's called the aorta. Comes out of the heart and you've got two main arteries that go into the brain. Okay. You've got the vertebral arteries or vertebral arteries. They sit at the back of the brain. Then you've got the carotid. These two, they come up, you've got two on each side, they come up. And then from there, you've got branching off of these different arteries. They go into veins, blood vessels, and capillaries. Okay. That is the vasculature of the brain. The brain is the most vascular rich organ in the entire body. 
If you were to pull apart all of the vessels, all of the blood vessels in and the veins and the arteries in the brain, it would span 400 miles. So it's very compact. What do arteries do? When your blood pumps out of the aorta, okay, it shoots blood into these arteries. And what does blood do? It carries oxygen and nutrients. Mm -hmm. So when I'm exercising, so a resting heart rate would call it, depending on how fit you are, could be 60 beats per minute. That means our heart is pumping. We need it. It's necessary. It keeps us alive. 60 beats per minute. When we exercise, maybe it goes to 100. So it's going a bit faster. When it goes, may, may even go to 150. It's beating. So that means more pumping of blood. That means we're getting more oxygen more nutrients to the brain, which means that if you have more oxygen to the brain, just like us, our lungs need oxygen, your brain's getting more oxygen. So that's another reason why we are getting an increase in brain performance and brain health when we exercise, because it has a lot to do with blood flow. And in fact, I believe that Alzheimer's disease is really a a disease of the blood vessels. So this vasculature is really important. And I'll finish off by saying you've got these tiny little capillaries, as I mentioned, tiny little blood vessels. They are one cell thick. They do not have muscles on their walls like arteries. So arteries are like these big tubes and these tubes are lined with, with literal muscles. Okay. So they're strong, but these tiny capillaries, one cell thick and they're the diameter of one hair they die off first and fast. Hmm. And you know what dies them off the quickest? Increase in blood pressure. So hypertension is one of the biggest things that can actually kill these tiny little capillaries in the brain. So let's just say we have been stressing, we've been sleep deprived, we've been eating poorly and we do that for 20 years. Just say we've killed off all the, all the capillaries. What happens then? We then move to the arteries because I've got no capillaries to kill off, we then move to the arteries and that's when things start to go wrong. That's when we get an occlusion of an artery, which would then mean a stroke. And a, a stroke, by the way, is literally just a blockage, an occlusion. We can get a stroke of the lung, mm-hmm. which is a pulmonary embolism. We can get a stroke of the heart, which is a heart attack. So these, this blood that we are getting is extremely important. And that's why exercise is fundamental for brain health. Once your capillaries die off, can you bring them back? No. Oh, we have something called angiogenesis. (sighs) Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, But these little capillaries, once they die, they're dead. Oh, that's terrifying. So if you have a demyelinating disease... And if you are not taking care of your health, exercising, doing aerobic work, and your capillaries are dying off over time, and you can get less oxygenated blood to them, you kind of have like a ticking time bomb. Ticking time bomb. Um, it's Look, it's just like a stroke. Once you kill off the neurons, you that's it. You can't grow them back. But the areas around that, that you know, once you've killed them off, the areas around that little part will get stronger to cater for that but you can't just go and have a stroke kill off neurons and then just grow them back it doesn't happen or we'd all be walking around with big massive heads right so 
what's good for the heart is good for the brain. And as we close out this conversation, I will say that everything compounds just like compound interest. You can have one night of bad sleep, but if you had 20 years of bad sleep, that compounds. And Alzheimer's disease isn't a one stamp, one point in time diagnosis. Mm -hmm. You're diagnosed late 60s, 70s, but it started happening in your 30s because of compound interest. I got one last question. Yeah. You got to give me something on sleep quick, right? And I kind of think about it as people basically say, and I would probably argue as I've gotten older, if there's one or if there's two things I can continue to do, it's meditate and make sure I get eight hours of sleep. What a life you live. Right? (laughs) And so I guess people kind of think about sleep as like the great equalizer for professionals, for athletes, if you're not doing it, frankly, you are completely losing out on where you could potentially be. Why is sleep so important for brain health? Sleep, we should... Look, you think that a third of our lives we spend in sleep. Why would we have to do that? It definitely serves some level of importance. Many things happen during sleep. Sleep is nothing but stages. Um, And, you know, as part of my training as a neurophysiologist, you go in and you do sleep studies. You learn what happens to someone when they sleep. We hook them up with an EEG. We learn different things. And we basically cycle through four stages of sleep. You've got stage one, which is when you are falling asleep. You've got stage two, it's when you're in light sleep. Then you've got stage three and four. They are fundamentally the the most important ones. Stage three is also, it's deep sleep, but it's also known as slow wave sleep, completely knocked out, deep, deep sleep. This is when we're producing a lot of our hormones. We've got growth hormone responsible for the repair, protein synthesis, the repair of muscle tissue. So that's when, you know, people talk about recovery, ice baths. Ice baths are great, but you're really getting the recovery during deep sleep. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll, I'll make that really clear. Stop ice bathing and start sleeping more. Okay. I say that as I'm getting my ice bath just put into <laughs> my apartment today. Second to that. During deep sleep, we activate the glymphatic system. Now, let's go back to the neurons. Remember I said 87 billion neurons? We've got these, we've got different types of neurons, and we've got one called glial cells. Also comes from the Greek word glue, and they sit between the neurons, okay? They stick there. I call them nonsense neurons, but they're part of the immune immunity part of the, the neurons as well. What happens is during deep sleep, they shrink in size, and then our cerebral spinal fluid which infiltrates the brain and and the spinal cord, it goes through and it washes out through the brain like a a washing machine or sewage system. And what that's doing is it's cleaning out all the debris, basically sweeping it up, cleaning it up. What's the debris? They're toxic molecules that have been brought into the brain through stress, uh, lifestyle factors, environment, what we eat. And one of those proteins is amyloid beta, which is the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. So you're clearing it out during deep sleep, washing it out. That's that. Then we go into REM sleep. It stands for rapid eye movement sleep. And this is where all of our learning and memory consolidation happens. So if you're not optimizing for deep sleep, you know, I know that you've asked me, you know, some of the, you know, why do we get brain fog? Really brain fog is just a you haven't activated 
the glymphatic system. You wake up, you're feeling foggy. Of course you are because you've, you have you didn't activate your glymphatic system. Your brain didn't wash itself out. So you've woken up and it, the to, it's like a toxic stew in your brain just sitting there clouding your judgment, decreasing your cognitive functions, decreasing clarity. That's what that is. So if you want to eliminate brain fog, you want to be able to get more oxygen to the brain. You want to be able to get into that deep sleep and clean the brain out. Okay. All right. Well, listen, we've taken up a tremendous amount of your time. We're definitely going to do a part two of this. Yeah. You have been amazing. And I thank you for all of your insight and your wisdom. And I felt like I learned so much during this conversation. Thank you. I've actually had really a lot of fun doing this. Hey guys, thanks for listening into this episode of Hone In. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe. And hey, If you have a minute, drop a comment below with your biggest learning, your insights, your takeaways from this conversation. I would personally love to hear from you. Tune in each week for more answers to questions, solutions to problems, and tangible advice that you can apply to your life to live smarter, stronger, and longer. One more thing before you guys leave. This is important. The Honan Podcast is intended as general information. Our purpose is to educate, inspire, and support you as you live a healthier, longer life. The use of information on this podcast is not, and I repeat, not intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, medical, or mental health professional. And it should not serve as diagnosis or treatment. If you are suffering from a psychological or a mental health condition, please seek help from a qualified health professional. Thank you so much for listening to us.